Good morning. So good to be up here and see all your smiling faces. Were you deceived like I were? This, I was deceived this morning. I walked out. I looked out my windows and saw this beautiful sunshine. And I'll put this nice little thin spring thing on because it looks so pretty. It's really chilly out there. My hands have been cold all morning. I can barely move things around. It's, it's crazy. My name is Vanita Jones, and I'm with the teaching team here at Women, with Women in the Word. And I'm hoping that as we've come to the end of January, you've actually recovered from Christmas. It kind of takes me all of January to actually do that. And I don't know about you, but I kind of get to the middle of the Christmas craziness, and I just want to find a place like maybe the middle of the mall and just throw my hands up in the air and scream at the top of my lungs, this is not what Jesus intended. Oh my goodness, it's craziness. Of course, I don't do that because I'd be tackled and handcuffed by some mall cop and let off in shame. That's exactly what I feel like doing. And every year, I get ready for it. It's coming. Christmas is coming. I'm not going to do it again. I pray about it. I I think about it. I, I get ready. And within a week into the Christmas season, I have been sucked right back into that vortex of Christmas busyness. The whole time saying, well, it's all in the name of tradition. You know, we've done it like this since Jesus was born. We certainly couldn't change anything at this point. This is how we're going to do it. And then Christmas rolls by, and I get through it, and I tend to hibernate for about three days. My kids know not to ask mom for food the day after Christmas because I'm going to point them to the refrigerator with turkey and dressing. If they can't figure it out, they're on their own. We, I'm not cooking. And, and I spend those days just kind of hibernating, and I read, and I watch a little television, and I just kind of kick back. And then, have you noticed... You start hearing, what's your New Year's resolution? Have you made your New Year's resolution? What is it going to be? And I'm like, oh, my goodness. Now I've got to make a New Year's resolution. We just got through Christmas, and there's all this craziness. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking, I need to lose weight. I need to get in a better diet. I need to sleep more. I need to be more organized. I need to put those photos in albums that are in there for 18 years. (laughs) It's time to do this. And I get sucked into that. I'm going to make a confession here this morning. It takes me less time to break a New Year's resolution than it does to get my Christmas decorations down and into the attic. I'm serious. By 7 p.m. on January 2nd, I'd broken two of my New Year's resolutions. And my Christmas tree, it's still in the box in my formal dining room, waiting for one of my boys to put it in the attic for me. It may be Memorial Day before I see that thing go. It is crazy. I am pathetic, and Christmas does it to me every year, and I hate that because it's, it's Christ's birthday, and I let that happen. You know, coming to the end of the new year and, and looking at the new year, coming uh, end of the year and looking at the new year, causes us kind of to look back and reevaluate and, and see what's happened. And I was doing that very thing at, towards the end of December, and I have to be honest with you, I think the last year... Truth be told, the last two or three years of my life could actually be entitled, Life is All About How You Handle Plan B. Or maybe Plan Z. Do you get that? 
In fact, my Bible verse has become John 16, 33 on your verse sheet. I have told you the things, these things so that in me you will have peace. In this world you will. And I think it should have been capitalized, bold, italicized, underlined. Everything you could do to it will have trouble in this world. But take heart. I have overcome the world. I have had to say this over and over the last several years of my life. <clears throat> because, see, the last several years have been kind of trying for me. There's been some new work schedules for me to, to kind of work into other schedules in my life. There's been um, some absolutely gut-wrenching family relationship issues that we're dealing with. There have been some very serious health issues in my family. And in the middle of all this, we decide, what a great time. Let's remodel half of our house and live in it. <clears throat> what were we thinking? What were we thinking? And, and, and it, all this had kind of brought me to this point where I was kind of discouraged. I was a little frustrated. I was kind of irritated with people in my lives. And, and I'll be honest, I just kind of wanted to quit. Like, I'm tired of this. Why, God, would you let some of these things happen to me? I don't deserve this. I'd become this big whiner. And I was completely focused on all these things going on in my life. All these things. But then, but God, don't you love those two words? That's one of my two favorite words in the whole world. Just as sure as something bad is going to follow, bless her heart, something good is always going to follow, but God. But God introduced me to this little book back in the, in, in the Old Testament named Ezra. Have you ever read Ezra? I hadn't. I had never. Thank you, Deb. I would have never, without her prodding, gone back to Ezra and camped in it for a whole four months. But it was awesome. And he brought me to this book, and, and he showed me. When I got there, when I started reading, he just pulled me out of that pity party, and he just put the brakes on. And he said, Vanita, you have been painting over with all this hard stuff, been using it to paint over all the amazing things I've done for you. I've been there in so many ways, and all you're focused on is the bad stuff that's happened in your life. <clears throat> and I was. I'll be honest with you. There were times towards the end of Christmas, I'm like, I'm done with this family stuff. I'm done with these people. I don't want to deal with any of this anymore. Don't call me unless you have a bone sticking out of your body. I'm done. I don't, I don't want to know about it. But then I found Ezra 5 and 6. And, and that's where I want us to open up to today. Open up your Bibles to Ezra 5. And I'm going to read first, while you're doing that, Ezra 4.24, because I think that verse kind of sets the mood for where we are today at the beginning of 5. <clears throat> A lot of stuff happens between the end of 4 and the beginning of 5. It says, Thus the work on the house of God in Jerusalem came to a standstill until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. You see, the Israelites, too, had become discouraged. I think they had looked back at this rebuilding and said, I'm tired. I'm done with this. I don't want to do this anymore. And they just quit. They just quit rebuilding. Now, before you judge him too harshly, don't you remember last week, the whole thing was about opposition that Deb taught us about. Even the title on the outline, opposition. These people had one thing after another. They couldn't, cut, they couldn't catch a break. It was one thing after another. And then we get to... The, the first verse of, of five of Ezra 5, and we find out that God sent Haggai and Zechariah, okay? And I want to read that first for you right here. 
that says, Now Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the prophet, a descendant of Ido, prophesied to the Jews in Judah and Jerusalem in the name of God of Israel who was over them. Now, we see them enter, come onto the scene, and they bring a few words from God, right? To prophesy to the Israelites. Now, if we were just to read this one verse, it would almost sound like this was just a little time of encouragement. Maybe they had a little motivational speaking going on here just to kind of get them prod them back to it. But do you remember what we read in our questions this week? This was not just a little motivational speech, was it? You see, I think Haggai and Zechariah had taken the Israelites out behind the woodshed, as my grandpa would have said, and they had that come-to-Jesus meeting. These people got it right in their face. And we see that in Haggai 4 through 6 when it says, Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your paneled houses while this house remains a ruin? Now this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. You have planted much, but you've harvested little. You eat, but you never have enough. You drink, but you never have your fill. You put on clothes, but you're not warm. And you earn wages only to put them in a purse with holes in it. They were completely focused on themselves. And then Zechariah comes in and he says this in verses 3 and 4. Therefore, tell the people, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Return to me, declares the Lord Almighty, and I will return to you. He says, do not be like your forefathers. And he reminds them of what their forefathers, the sin they had done and what it caused them. See, I think Ezra was sugarcoating what was happening here. There's a lot going on in verse 1, and I want to camp there for just a little bit so you understand just where they really were because it makes the rest of Ezra so much more important to all of us. And it was, it was important to them. See, they, were, they hadn't just stopped or given up building on this temple. I mean, they had given up on God. They had just quit. They quit the building, and they quit God, and they started focusing on their own desires. And, and, you know, it was an easier path. They had a lot of obstacles. And I'm sure, just like me, they probably rationalized it. Yeah, you know, I'm supposed to take care of myself, and, and I need this nicer house, and, and I want that new car because I need to keep my kids safe. And, and, goodness, my kids need the nicest car. And we rationalize everything out. And, and it sounds so much better to us. And it's slow. It's like a slow fade that happens. Now, I've had to stand up here with these bright lights on me and this microphone. And I've been brutally honest about some things, about my lack of being able to be timely with my Christmas decorations and that I can't keep a New Year's resolution. So I'm going to pose to you a couple questions. And I want you to be brutally honest. And I won't even put the lights on you or give you the microphone. But just with yourself right there in the pew. I want you to think first before I ask you these questions back to what we studied this week. Do you remember I had you look up those verses about the tabernacle and we kind of, the temple? And we kind of, we kind of camped there for a, a little bit in our questions. And I wanted you to see how important the temple was to the Jews. How important it was to the Israelites. Remember it was the tent of meetings, it was the tabernacle, and then it was the temple that King Solomon built. And it was important because... It's where God dwelled. It's where the presence of God was. And then, <clears throat> I had you go to the New Testament. I had you look in 1 Corinthians 3.16. And it says this, Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit lives in you? 
And I read it in the message, and it says, you realize, don't you? You are the temple of God. And that God himself is present in you. You know, knowing this as, as Christians, and when I say this as Christians, I, I mean someone who has accepted the redemptive word of, Christ, of Christ's work on the cross. When you've accepted that, and he is now your Lord and Savior, at that point, you, your life, becomes his temple. And he dwells in you. And, and, and if we want to take this one step further, you know, the Israelites knowing what we know about the temple of the Old Testament, what we studied this week, it's, it's a place where the word of God was stored and it was spoken. It's a place where they worshiped the Lord every day. And it's a place where they, were, they offered sacrifices in, in that temple. And, stick with me here, if we go just a little bit further with this, remember all the countless hours they spent caring for this temple. It's like their whole life was wrapped up, even back when as a tent, the man hours and the time that was spent to pack it up and move it around, pack it up as they wandered around, and then they had it built. They constantly were caring for this temple. <clears throat> so I suggest that we too should be caring for this temple. Now, understand me, I'm not one bit today talking about the physical care of your body. I think that's really important. I think you should take care of yourself, eat right, do what you can to stay healthy. I think that's very important. Today, we're only going to focus on the spiritual aspects, and that's what we're going to be talking about as we move through Ezra. You see, there's so much more to it than just our health and just to exercise. Now, here are the questions I want to ask you. Is your temple, this place where God is dwelling, is it a place where God's word is being stored and where it's being spoken? Is it a place where you are daily worshiping God with everything you do in your life? And is it a place where the sacrifices you're making, and when I say sacrifices, I mean things like the first fruits, the first fruits of your money, <clears throat> the first fruits <clears throat> excuse me, of your time, the first fruits of your energy, is it going to God or is it going into this purse that has a hole in it, and then you have nothing left over to give to God. And do you, like the Israelites, finally just get discouraged with all of this? And you kind of get frustrated, and honestly, you just kind of go, really, what's the point? It looks like they're having a little more fun over there. That looks a lot easier. I think I'd rather do that. That's where we are at the beginning of Ezra. And I think knowing that... For 16 years, that's what was going on. I think the rest of this makes so much more sense to us. You know, we learned from Deb that it was 16 years and that Haggai and Zechariah popped on the scene at that point. And Haggai, he cuts straight to the chase, doesn't he? He tells them, you've neglected God. And he warns them, they both want them, don't repeat these. See, through Haggai and Zechariah, God didn't just offer this reprimand, but he offered them a reprimand and repentance. And he does the same for us. See, Haggai, came, he came in there and he says, you're chasing your own pleasures and desires. And he said, because you're so self-focused, you're always wanting more because you're not filling up on the right stuff. And then because you always want more, you're just working and working for nothing and have nothing left over. It's a very strong reprimand. One I could get on a daily, daily basis. But God, there it is, there's two words. But God, he didn't just send the bad cop. He sent the good cop, Zechariah. 
And Zechariah comes in and, and he tells him, remember your sin. And he said, turn to him and he'll turn back to you. That's awesome. That had to feel like they were standing under a waterfall of cool, refreshing water after they had just gotten this tongue lashing from Haggai. They knew there was a way to turn this all around. And did you realize that that Haggai and Zechariah used God's word to reprimand and lead them to repentance? See, the truth is, by using God's word on a daily basis to reevaluate our lives, it helps us to recognize our sin. It reminds us that God's promises are everlasting. He promises to forgive us over and over again, and it will always lead us to repentance. He reprimands us because we need it, but he doesn't leave it there. He always gives us a way to turn it all around. And we, too, can start rebuilding like the Israelites in verse verse 1 of chapter 5. See, they've come back from the woodshed. They adjourned that Jesus meeting they just had, and they were back at it. They were recommitted. They were ready to start building, so they did. And that's where we find them in verse 2. I'm going to read chapter, uh, verse 2 through 17. So just follow along with me as I stumble through these names. Just please be gracious. Then Zerubbabel, son of, she, uh, you know that guy, Shealtiel, and Joshua, son of Jezedek, set to work to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And the prophets of God were with them, helping them. At that time, Tatanay, governor of Trans-Euphrates, and his buddy, S.B. there, and their associates went to them and asked, Who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore this structure? They also asked, What are the names of the men constructing this building? But the eyes of their God were watching over the elders of the Jews, and they were not stopped until a report could go out to Darius and his writing, his written reply be received. <clears throat> this is a copy of the letter that these guys sent, whatever their names are. The report they sent him read as follows. To King Darius, cordial greetings. The king should know that we went to the district of Judah, to the temple of the great God. The people were building. It was, worth, it was a large stone and placing the timbers in the walls. The work is being carried out with diligence and is making rapid progress under their direction. We questioned the elders and asked them, who authorized you to rebuild this temple and restore the structure? We also asked them who, their names so that we could write down the names of their leaders for your information. And this is the answer they gave us. I love this verse. We are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king of Israel built and finished. But because our fathers angered the God of heaven, he handed them over to Nebuchadnezzar and the the Chaldean, king of Babylon, who destroyed this temple and deported the people to Babylon. However, in the first year, King Cyrus of Babylon, King Cyrus issued a decree to rebuild this house of God. He even removed the temple of Babylon, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to the temple in Babylon. Then King Cyrus asked them... Asked them to, uh, gave them to a man named Shezbazar, whom he had appointed governor. And he told him, take these articles and go and deposit them in the temple in Jerusalem and rebuild the house of God on its site. So this Shezbazar came and laid the foundations of the house of God in Jerusalem. 
From that day to the present, it has been under construction, but is not yet finished. Now, if it pleases the king, let a search be made in the royal archives of, the ba- of Babylon and see if King Cyrus did in fact issue a decree to rebuild this house of God in Jerusalem. Then let the king send us his decision in a matter, in a matter of time. Okay. Now, we see this. They recommitted and... Goodness, they certainly were in God's will here, weren't they? Things should be running smoothly, and boom. Second verse, they hit another, another obstacle. Another one. You see, but I see them handling this one totally different in these verses. you see that? They didn't just quit. And I think it's because this time they decided to rebuild on the truth of God. The truth of God's words. Remember, Zechariah and Haggai brought God's words to them. They knew that God wanted them rebuilding this. And they knew that he wanted them to stay focused on him and not on anything else around him. And they knew this because they had heard God's words. So they just kept moving forward. Now, like the Israelites, we face opposition too all the time. We hit obstacles. We get discouraged. And I think based on what we see in these verses, that we can choose to, to, to face our opposition totally different also. You know, I think the first thing we have to start doing is we have to recognize the presence of God in our life. And I don't mean just on Sunday morning when you're here praising and listening to Ted or whoever's speaking or on Thursday mornings when you're here. I mean every minute of every day. You have to recognize where God is in your life. And we saw that the Israelites did that very thing in verse 2. It says that when they said about rebuilding the temple, it said that the prophets of God were with them and helping them. Now you see, God didn't just send this good cop, bad cop to them and then take them off the scene, did he? He kept them there. They stayed there and they worked right alongside them. This had to be a constant reminder of their, their recommitment, had to be a constant reminder of God's promises to them, and, and it, was, it was just one, one of the many ways that he provided for them. And then we see that in verse 5, we see that he watched over them. Remember it said the eyes of God were on the elders? He, he, and he protected them. This had to give them that courage to keep moving forward. He had promised to do that. You see, we too need to recognize God's protection. Every single day, he's protecting us from things we don't even know about. And you see, this opposition that they faced, and opposition we face and all the obstacles, it's not out of his gaze. He knows all of this is going on. He allowed it. He, he could take us away from it, and he could pull the obstacle away from us easily, but he doesn't always do that. He will sometimes just walk right through it with us. He will always walk right through it. If he asks us to go through it, he'll go through it with us. He promises that very thing in Hebrews 13, 5b through 6. He says, he says uh, God has said, never will I leave you or forsake you. So we say with confidence, the Lord is my helper and I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? And then we go on in verse 11 in here, my favorite verse, and we see the Israelites do something that's, really cool they acknowledge god's authority in their lives 
Remember that? They said, we are the servants of the God of heaven and earth, and we are rebuilding this temple that was built many years ago by a great king, and it was finished. And, and after they say that, they go on to explain that th- their fathers, forefathers had sinned, and they go on to tell them all the stuff that led up to where they are today. How did they know this stuff? Because Zechariah and Haggai had reminded them with God's truth. It's God's truth. They found their truth and based it on God's word. What a novel idea, huh? And then lastly, we see them recognize God's presence by recognizing God's faithfulness to them. In verses 15 and 16, they tell us of all the ways that God brought them to where they are. He provided for them. He provided a pagan king to give them the decree. He can use anything and anyone to achieve his purpose. Now, I want to continue reading. And um, Ezra, and we're going to finish up. It'll be from Ezra 6, 1 through 12, if you'll follow along. It says, King Darius then issued an order, and they searched in the archives stored in the treasury at Babylon. A scroll was found in the citadel of wherever that is, in the province of Media, and this, is written, this was written on it. Memorandum. In the first year of King Cyrus, the king issued a decree concerning the temple of God in Jerusalem. Let the temple be rebuilt as a place to present sacrifices, and let its foundations be laid. It is to be 90 feet high and 90 feet wide with three courses of large stones and one of timbers. I just love the detail they, put, they actually put in there. I think it's so cool. The costs are to be paid by the royal treasury. Also, the gold and silver articles of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took from the temple in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, are to be returned to their places in the temple and in, in Jerusalem. But they are to be... To, uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. They are to be deposited in the house of God. Now then, Tetanai, this is I love this part. I think he kind of called him on the carpet. Governor of Trans-Euphrates and all your buddies, he said, stay away from there. Do not interfere with the work on this temple of God. Let the governor of the Jews and the Jewish elders rebuild this house on God, on, uh, of God on its site. Moreover, I hereby decree that if you, uh, what you do what you're to do for these elders of the Jews in the construction of this house of God. The expenses of these men are to be fully paid out of the royal treasure from the revenues of the trans-Euphrates so that the work will not stop. Whatever is needed, young bulls, rams, male, lambs, and burnt offerings, to the Lord, to the God of heaven, and wheat, salt, wine, and oil, as requested by the priests in Jerusalem, must be given them daily without fail, so that they may offer sacrifices pleasing to the God of heaven and pray for the well-being of the king and his sons. And again, a little bit of ulterior motives there, and maybe his motivation wasn't in quite the right place. But Furthermore, I decree that if anyone changes his edict, a beam is to be pulled from his house, and he is to be lifted up and impaled on it. And for this crime, his house is to be made a pile of rubble. May God, who has caused his name to dwell there, overflow, overthrow any king or people who lifts a hand to change his decree or destroy the temple in Jerusalem. I, Darius, have decreed it. Let it be carried out with diligence. See, he got that letter. He did the research. He found what he needed. And he didn't just bake them a cake. He iced it and he put sprinkles on it. 
See, God had given the Israelites reassurance and rewards for their diligence and their perseverance and the, the wherewithal the, to keep moving forward even in the face of opposition. See, we too can be reassured that God will reward our diligence and our perseverance when we're faced with opposition as we walk with Christ. He will always, always promise us that. Romans 8, 17 and 18 says this, Now if we are children, we are the heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings in order that we may also share in his glory. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's our reassurance. That's our reward for sticking to it. Not giving up. Now, we saw the Israelites in Ezra 5 and 6 handle their opposition totally different. And I chose to believe that that's because they began to rebuild on this foundation of the truth of God's word. So I want to ask you, where is your truth based? Where is it based? Is it based on the unchangeable word of God? Is it found here? Or is your truth based on something that you hear out in the world, like on Oprah or Dr. Phil or some new self-help book or something else that's out there, the latest trend you hear about on, on the Today Show every morning? Where is it based? You know, it reminds me of my black lab, and I think I've talked, to her, talked about her before and even shown you pictures. She is possibly the sweetest love sponge ever created by God. And, but I don't think I mentioned last time that she's brave and she's brilliant and she's obedient and she is perfect in every way, almost. And, and she hunts with my boys in the house and they report to me that she is the best bird dog the Jones household has ever owned. And they'll say that she fearlessly, without a thought, will just bound out into a muddy river and bring birds back that they've brought down. She'll, she'll blindlessly run out into a field of tall grass and shoo out the pheasants for them every time, just like she was taught. She's awesome. So I hope that you understand how frustrated I am when I tell you that that dog will not drink out of her water bowl. <laughs> I don't get it. We've changed water bowls. We changed from the shiny one that maybe it's scared or the reflection. We... I mean, it's just crazy. We we bought a rubber one thinking that would be better. It was black, and then she, maybe it made the water taste bad. So we got this other stuff. I can't even identify what it is, and she still won't drink out of it. We've moved the water bowl. It was in front of a window by the back door. Maybe the reflection scared her. Maybe it was too distracting. We moved it to a quiet place. My husband is even taken to emptying the half-full bottles of water my kids leave around our house everywhere into the water bowl. She has in a quiet place, tucked away in the side of the house there, a new bowl, fresh bottle of water, and she won't drink out of it. I don't get it. If I let her out in the backyard to do her business, after about two minutes, if I, she's not at that back door wagging her tail, I know exactly what she's doing. And I go out there and I'll find her. She'll be licking up water out of something, somewhere. Usually it's like a mud puddle. That's disgusting. It's been there for days and days. Or out of an old bucket that has rotten leaves in it and stuff growing and she's licking it up. Or she's licking the dew off the grass. It drives me wild. And so, because I worry about hydration, that's what medical people do, you want her to stay hydrated. Several times a week I lead her and I lure her in. Come on, come on. And I go, here's your water. And I like splash it around and she looks at me like, no, thank you. 
I've already had some of that rancid stuff in the backyard, and I'm fine. And then she won't look at it. And then I finally have to say, okay, this is a master dog thing. Vance, here, drink. And I have to stand there. I have to go drink, drink, drink the whole time. And she'll like lick, lick. She's a little bit like, like this lady has lost it. Until I think she's sufficiently hydrated. And then I let her go. Ladies, are you anything like Phoenix? Are you anything like her? I mean, are you going out in this world trying to find your truth that's rancid and you're drinking of that truth and it's leaving you not satisfied ever? Are you drinking from that cool, refreshing word of God every single day? You know what's interesting to me is when I do the luring and I kind of bring her in and she will like lick a couple times and look at me like, okay, you finished yet? And, and, I, and I stick with it and then I have to go to the, mm, and I have to get really angry and I stand over her and I go, drink, drink. And I literally will do that and have to go, good girl, good girl, drink, drink. And when she stops, she'll lick a little bit and she'll kind of look at me and she'll lick. And then after about 15 seconds, she is guzzling that water, guzzling. There is water flying up on the walls, on the floor, in her face, all over me. And then she looks up at me and her bowl's completely empty. And she waddles over to her pillow over in the corner and she makes this sound, hmm. And she lays down and she sleeps for hours completely at peace. Ladies, do you have to be lured back to God's word time and time again? Because you keep running out in the backyard to drink the bad stuff? Or, or does God ever have to do like he does to me a lot? Vanita, here, read! And stand over me, read, read, read! And, and good girl, good girl. And you have to completely do this all the time? And have you ever noticed that when you finally do, like if you had this little stretch of kind of dry time and you hadn't been in the Word, and you think, okay, I know I'm supposed to, okay, quiet time. Write it on your schedule. And you, I'm going to read a couple words in there today. And you read a verse, and it looked, yeah, that was pretty good stuff. And then you read a little more, and then you can't hardly quit reading it. Because it's like a cool, refreshing drink of water, and you just want to guzzle it, and you're going to find it, you're going to want it more and more and more. You see... I want you to rethink your New Year's resolution, and I want you to base this one on God's Word. I want you to base, base it on God's truth, and not on stuff you learned on the Today Show about diet and exercise. I want you to base it on what God says about your truth. You know, I mentioned earlier that Ezra 5.11 was my favorite verse in here. I'm going to read it one more time for you. It says, We are the servants of God of heaven and earth. We are rebuilding the temple that was built many years ago, one that a great king built and finished. You know, the Israelites said this when they were questioned about the rebuilding of the temple. But I want to suggest something. I want to suggest this could actually be our verse as we walk through this spiritual walk with Christ. Facing opposition, sometimes feeling a little discouraged, a little disheartened, wanting to just quit and maybe live like the world lives. Because see, we too are servants of God of heaven and earth. We saw that. We see it right there in the, in the New Testament. It says it in Luke 4, 8. It says, Jesus answered to Satan. He's talking to Satan in the, in the wilderness. It says, it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. We're God's servants, just like they were the servants of God. And then remember we learned in, in 1 Corinthians six thirteen that if we've accepted Christ as our Lord and Savior, this is the temple. He dwells in us. His spirit is in us. And so we, too, have a great temple 
like they had back then. And we know that our temple was also built by a great king of Israel. And not just a great king of Israel. I suggest he is the great king of Israel. It's Jesus Christ. Right? We see it in Matthew 1 where it says that he, he came from a long line of Israel, kings of Israel. It says he's Jesus Christ, the son of David. He was in the line of David. And then in verse 6 it tells us that, that, that Jesse was the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon. And he goes to this, and, and they're talking about Solomon finishing this temple. But I would like to suggest that our great king, Jesus Christ, he built and finished our temple too. And we see that when we go into John 19.30, and it's Jesus is on the cross, and it says, after he received the drink, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. You see, Jesus was declaring that this temple he had started to build, just like King Solomon built that big temple back then, he finished it. It was finished. It was finished because of his redemptive work on that cross. And we don't have to build that temple. We just have to take care of this temple, just like the Israelites did. And how do we take care of it? We learned it from the Israelites. We store the Word of God in this temple, and we speak it anytime it's on our lips. It needs to be spoken. And we focus focus on His goodness and His faithfulness so we can live a life of worship right here in this temple. Not just on Sunday morning, not just when you're here at worshiping in the mornings on Thursday, but everything you do worships God. And then we also make sacrifices. Yeah, we make first fruit sacrifices of our money and our time and our energy. And then those sacrifices become a sweet aroma to our Heavenly Father. Please pray with me. Precious Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you how this little obscure book back in Ezra that it just, it just speaks to us, Lord. You never leave us empty. Lord, I pray that we will take this and we will apply it to our lives, Lord. That it will be applied and that, that it will just honor and glorify you as you live in this temple that you've built and finished for us. In Christ's name I pray this. Amen.